Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Books Podcast with Neil Hegarty, held in association with the Irish Writers' Centre here in Parnell Square in Dublin. I'm Laura Slattery and I'm here tonight to talk to Neil about his very fine debut novel, Inch Levels, which is the Irish Times Book Club title for the month of September. Set in Derry and Donegal, Inch Levels spans 50 years from the 1930s to the 1980s, from a generation that experienced the Second World War to the generations that endure the Troubles. It's the story about family secrecies and sudden violence, silence and shockwaves. Published by Head of Zeus in 2016, Inch Levels is Neil's first novel, but he's a widely published uh, writer and his non-fiction titles include Frost, that was the life that was, and The Story of Ireland. Shortlisted for the 2017 Kerry Group Novel of the Year Award, Inch Levels revolves around the tensions of blood relations, the wonders of our parents' lives before us, and the ever-widening depths of bereavement. I'm quoting what the judges said in that instance. It is, they said, a triumphant book. And in her review for the Irish Times, Danielle McLaughlin wrote about how Neil vividly evokes the wild beauty of the coastal landscape around Loch Swilly and reeled her in with his, its gradual revelations. But here to tell us more about how and why he wrote it, please welcome Neil Hegarty. <laughs> Neil, can you tell, tell us what was your starting point for coming to write Inch Levels? The starting point was uh, a story of the Second World War. So there's a, there's a layer in the book which goes back to the 1930s and 1940s. And I wrote a full-length novel set during the war. And that came from um, years ago. I read about an explosion on the coast of Donegal in 1943. Uh, a sea mine exploded and it killed 19 men and boys in a small townland. Town and I had never heard of this, even though it, it was a huge disaster. And, and I thought, well, how come, you know, I've written a story, I've written a, a, book, a book about Ireland, about, about Irish history. How did I never hear about that? And it, it, all, it all went from there. That was the, the germ, the initial idea. I'd always wanted to write, a, a, if you like, a family saga. And that's where it began. It's only later that it extended into a, a much broader span of years and a much larger book. So, I mean, there is an author's note in the book um, where you note that that incident, the, the, the real-life incident that you draw upon, um, has faded from, from, from the public consciousness and, yes. and memories. Is it the case, do you think, that it's simply just been uh, superseded in time by other traumas and uh, other things that have happened in the area? That, that, is that why it's been forgotten or was it just did it just never register in the way that it perhaps should have done? I think that there was, there is still to a certain extent a, a certain unease <clears throat> about talking about the Irish war experience, the emergency, as it's euphemistically called, um, that Ireland was, it was neutral, but it wasn't all that neutral. Um, it was, it was surrounded by war and it, it saw war itself in the sense that there were, there were bodies washing up on the western seaboard. Uh, there were Irish people going abroad to fight, but to fight for the British. So there, there was, a, I think that there were a lot of things that that people didn't particularly want to talk about. And then when war was, when it was visited in such an appalling way, 
in that incident in Donegal in 1943, it wasn't forgotten about. It just wasn't talked about in that Irish way where, where something can be known and not known at the same time. And then, as we all know, as soon as the war ended, it was time to move on. Let's move on briskly. So that even though you can't say that this is a, that it was a, a forgotten episode of history, it just isn't as widely known as it ought, as it, it ought to be. And I was really surprised about, about that. So the book opens with a quite, quite a different event, which is the murder of a young girl in the 1980s. Can, mm. you, can you tell me why you decided to open on that, on that instant? That came quite late. Um, I, I'm of an age where I can remember uh, children going missing in England and Scotland in the late 70s and 80s, children my age. And as you can imagine, that sort of thing stayed in my head. Um, but the incident which opens inch levels came almost almost at the end. Um, I, I needed to frame the whole book around another calamity, another catastrophe. And that was the memory, if you like, that was the idea that swam into my mind. And um, it made sense as a, as a frame for the whole book so that you could read everything back against that one terrible um, incident which you know ruins the lives of all sorts of people in all sorts of ways. So we're also introduced very early on to Patrick uh, who, who, who's in, in, in a hospital bed, he's, 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 he's dying in, in Derry mm-hmm. and I mean he seems helpless which is perhaps um, a little bit of a misdirection because he's not completely helpless, he's, he's got things he can he can influence the story as we can see later on in the book I, I don't want to give away too many spoilers but no. um so what led you to sort of come to Patrick as a kind of focal point um for this this family story um it it was it was a it was something which again came came relatively late in the in the writing process which is strange when I, I look at the final book now because he's he's the central character, but for a long time his mother Sarah, she was the central character in my imagination. We see her as a as a young girl, as as a woman, and on the on the edge of old age. And in my mind, she's still the central character. She's the one who I I have most sort of I have an emotional bond with more than anybody else. But as I came to write the story of the second generation. Um, he presented himself in my imagination. He was he 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 was interested in history, but he couldn't get a, a grasp of his own history. He was he was aware, and you know he was educated. He was aware of all sorts of things going on in the world, but his own room for manoeuvre was very tightly circum um, t- tightly sort of bounded, and. Um, I, I also wanted to I wanted to write a book where where somebody was looking back on their life was trying to make sense of their life and where the the sand and and the time glass was was beginning to run out that there wasn't very much time for him to if he chose to to make the necessary changes which could set the remainder of his life onto a new onto a new trajectory. Um, so he came to me 
gradually. Um, but I was, I was very happy with, with the, the final character when he was there on the page. So Patrick and his uh, sibling, uh, Margaret, I mean, they really, they can never really know their mother, Sarah, who's endured, I mean, it's, it's hinted that she's endured some past trauma, mm. but we don't know what that is. And that's essentially the, the, cent the central mystery of the book, uh, yes. in a way, rather than the, the murder of, of, the, of the young girl. Um, is, it a, is it a kind of an, a particularly Irish thing, do you think, to this kind of phenomenon of, of maybe... Of, of parents burying so much about their pasts or, or, or is it a, a universal kind of realisation when, you, when you're growing up to, to come to the conclusion that you'll never really know your parents? I think it's definitely an Irish thing, which is not to say that it doesn't exist in other cultures or in other countries, but I think everybody over a certain age in Ireland can identify with a family dynamic where things aren't said. Where, where everything is said except the important stuff. And um, Sarah, she's doing her, her best. She's not, she's not acting out of any, any malign motive. And, and that's an that's, that's absolutely crucial point. She, she, she acts the way she acts. She is the way she is for the best of intentions. She decided she was going to keep a secret in order to protect other people, even more than herself. She, she, she has enough time for, in the rest of her life to realise that that it perhaps wasn't the right choice to make. But by that stage, it's almost too late. And, and I think that the ability to keep secrets and to keep silent about things is definitely an Irish phenomenon. I, I've been amazed, actually, at the amount of people We've read the book and have said, you know, you've, you seem to have been talking about my, my family. You seem to have some access to my family history. Uh, and, uh, and my reply is always, well, in a way, I feel like I do. There's actually, um, towards the end of the book, I think um, uh, there's a great line where um, you say Patrick is watching his sister through virtually closed eyelids, which I thought was kind of a way of summing up, really, I suppose. Yeah. You're in close proximity to uh, your loved ones, but maybe your actions don't really help them necessarily, or you're not, nobody's helping each other really in the emotionally open way that they, they might do. Yeah, things are approached sideways, this kind of crab walk all the time, if they're approached at all. And the worst of it is, is that everybody knows instinctively or knows at some level that this is not working, that nothing is working the way it ought to be working. But everybody is too bound up in this particular pattern to be able to change it. Or are they, is the point of the book. So I'd love to invite you now to uh, read a passage from Inch Levels, if you would like to give a short introduction to it. And, okay. um, um, this is a, a section set on a beach in Donegal in the summer of 1960. And I chose it because it, it introduces the two generations of the family. So the father and the mother, Sarah and Martin, and their two children, Patrick and Margaret. At this stage, Margaret is seven, Patrick is six. They're beginning to grow out of early childhood. They're on the verge of looking about them in the world, thinking about their own relationships. And um, 
they're on, on the beach. They've been told that in the bay, a ship of the Spanish Armada sank 400 years before. And they've got it into their heads that if they get into the water, if they can just wade in, do a little bit of diving, they may find some gold bars, some Spanish Armada treasure, or even even better, some, some bones of dead Spanish sailors. So they're in a hurry to get into the water. And this short piece is told from Margaret's point of view. And as you'll see, she's, she's not best pleased. Margaret's throat was tight with rage and frustration. How dare he? How dare they? How dare Patrick and how dare their daddy? How dare they and how dare they? Not out of your depth, Margaret, her daddy said, behind her from the shallows. He was wading, his trouser legs turned up neatly. Go carefully, please, he said to her. Not to Patrick, who was younger, but who was allowed to wade into the deep water, who could go out of his depth. He was first to take a breath and plunge his head into the waves. Who was a boy? She ignored her daddy. She waded faster. Her daddy didn't want to get his trousers wet. She knew this. She trade on it. She moved faster, out of his depth, out of her reach. The sandy bottom fell away. She took a breath and plunged and opened her eyes. All suddenly, suddenly, not a moment to lose, the water green and cold, pressing against her wide eyes. And now she saw her brother's left leg and she caught at it and pulled. She'd teach him. She could feel his panic there in the green water. He was out of his depth now, well out, and he kicked away, but she yanked again, harder. She'd teach him a lesson. She had the advantage of surprise. She yanked again. She'd show them who was strongest and cleverest, and she didn't need her father to say so besides. And suddenly now her brother's face appeared, white and ghost-like in the water. They were face to face and his right leg and his arms were thrashing and his eyes wide with shock and fear. And in a horrified, blurred moment, she released her grasp of his other leg. For another instant, they stared, suspended, their eyes wide open in the water. And now she felt herself yanked in her turn and pulled upwards and she surfaced, streaming water. And there he was, her father, livid and streaming too. And now Patrick popped to the surface of the water beside her. His hands were empty. No treasure, no bones. She knew what he'd been looking for. And now she was pulled ashore. What were you doing? What the hell did you think you were doing? I, I was swimming, diving. I saw what you were doing. Wait till I get you home. Seawater ran down her father's face. Yes, livid. She'd be thrashed this evening when they got home. So he said, though he'd cooled down later, he never thrashed. And even now he was cooling. The beach had filled up a little, even in these last few minutes, and there was too much of an audience for him. He was cooling right down. She sensed this, her escape from a promised thrashing. But running alongside this relief, she was aware of other sensations. Envy, yes, and a still potent fury at her brother's position his privilege based on nothing, but something else too. We were just trying to touch the bottom, said Patrick, and she watched as their father turned and looked from one to the other. Love, 
of course. And the ache that came with it, born out there in the water, of a fear that something might happen to this little boy with his red towel, with his skinny arms and legs and his white, thin face. Patrick was rubbing his eyes blindly. Then his hands dropped and he looked at her and she saw the same realisation written in his eyes. Margaret would remember this expression, oh, for the rest of her life, would do anything for this little boy, for this brother that not five minutes before she would gladly have drowned had she been able to get away with it. She glanced up the beach to where her mummy and Cassie sat on towels. Mummy hadn't moved. She looked like a, like that statue, Margaret thought, carved in their church from white stone. Margaret saw her and looked away. No need to have anything or anyone interfere with her newfound knowledge, standing dripping here in the, on the warm white sand on a sunny afternoon. Thank you very much. I mean, so many of the uh, commentators and reviewers have noted just the the role of of the landscape and, and the location. I mean, in, in this novel, um, what does what does it mean to you? At a very, at a very simple level, I wanted to write a book set in these landscapes of Inishowen and Derry and these seascapes because they're they're where I feel at home because I feel an emotional bond to it, to them. And I wanted to see to what extent I could get that down on the page. So at a very simple level, it was about that. That's where I wanted to write this book. But I also wanted to show that landscape is, is more than just the context of our lives. It's more than just this sort of wallpaper that we live our, our lives out against that it's, it's, um, it's part of our DNA. It's part of what influences our life and it's part of our destinies too. I, I've always been interested in, in writing which tries to bring that aspect to life. And, and I think that there's more of it um, sort of coming through. There's, there's, there are more writers who think of the landscape as a live thing almost as another character, if you can do that. So I wanted to see to what extent I could bring that alive rather than just have it as a flat surface against which our lives are projected. No, I mean, I think it just perfectly um, reflects uh, Sarah's dilemma, I suppose, the younger Sarah, mm. because the sea is, you know, represents an escape I think it looks you know it's, it's in it's an escape into a different world but it's also a source of of, of peril and that those two things are really evident in in the book and, and Sarah although the area the does you know she's not well treated by her own family she remains loyal to this to this place that she she grew up in yeah she she, she lies in bed as a as a teenager during the war and she hears the torpedoes going going off at sea where the the allied shipping has been destroyed by german mines and german sub submarines and I, I i took that from 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 life my mother was brought up in the show and it's one of her earliest memories of hearing the torpedoes and, and knowing that 
the bodies would be washed ashore in, in, in the following days. So the sea represents peril for her and the coast represents something appalling, this kind of liminal line. But then, you know, heaven knows what you're, what you're going to find on the beach the next morning. And yet at the same time, terrible things happen there, but it's, it, it's woven into her. It isn't, it isn't all bad and it's still her home place. And she, she can't really get away from it even if she wants to. And for the most part, she doesn't even want to. So it's, it's, that, it's that dilemma um, that I was trying to bring to life. And I, I, think, I, think, I think probably anybody could understand that about the place, the place where you live. It's so soaked in memory. Some of it's good, some of it's bad, some of it's appalling, unless you're very lucky. So I was trying to dramatise that as much as I could. So we see in a, in a heartbreaking scene, um, Sarah kind of paying the price essentially for being seen to be too clever by half, as her father puts it in the in the very constrained uh, society that she's in, and she has to be roped in. I think is is the, fra- the phrase you use. And um, Cassie is another character who you could say has been roped in. Uh, Margaret, uh, it seems like her girlhood is kind of protracted as well. It goes down a, the the wrong path. Is is there a sense of of uh, people repeating the mistakes of of previous generations, or it's just a very a uh, society that's very slow to accept freedom? I think it's a bit of both. Um, there was certainly no point trying to create on the page the sort of society where, where, for example, women could do whatever they wanted because it, it, it didn't exist. You could argue it doesn't really exist now, but it, it certainly didn't exist then. And it's also the, the earlier generation being, feeling set in stone and the younger generation doing the same thing, making the same mistakes, which is what happens. You know, we, we all know that in terms of trauma or various kinds of abuse and, and, and so on, these, um, these, these sins seem to be doomed to be repeated unless there's some intervention that stops it in its tracks and sets it onto a, new, onto a new trajectory. So these are things that happen. Um, and it, it, takes something, it takes something radical to make that change. I mean, there is something radical in the book which tentatively, if you wanted to, as a reader, begins to introduce a possibility of change. But that's not a settled thing. Yes, well, I was going to ask you that about the ending because it does seem to me that it ends on a hopeful note, uh, you know, sort of maybe restoring faith perhaps in, in, in humanity where people can, two people in the same family can unite and be there for each other in that uh, slightly <laughs> cliched way, but essentially um, essential to the human existence. Is, is that something that was important to you to, to have that faith and hope at the end? I wanted it, I wanted there to be a glimmer of it, certainly. I didn't want it to end. It, it, couldn't, it couldn't have ended on a completely negative note, not the way that I structured it and plotted it. It, it was never going to end like that. But if there is a note of optimism 
um, it's really up to the, the reader then to decide what happens af afterwards. I, I think I, I present the possibility and I leave it at that. Um, it's, it seemed, seemed to me, I, I wanted to show that stoicism is, is a valid moral choice, that you can, be, you can be stoic, you can choose to endure, um, and that's okay because it leaves the possibility of future things to happen. But if you, if you choose not to endure, if you choose to despair, then everything stops, everything is blocked. But if you're, if you're stoic, if you choose the path of stoicism, then everything else is possible as a result of that. And I wanted to leave it on that, as you say, tentatively optim optimistic note. So, and, and as you say, it's a, the reader can bring their own sense of optimism and, and, and faith to it. Yeah. Um, but the reverse is also true earlier in the novel. Um, the finger of suspicion, I suppose, um, might you know fall on, on several characters because, as we've mentioned, you opened with the murder of a young girl and it, we don't know, although you, you answered the question, we don't know, obviously, throughout the novel uh, who is responsible for that murder. Yeah. Uh, as as readers read inch levels, do you, do you want them? Are you wanting them to think that cer that certain people are responsible? Are, are you were you trying to misdirect in any way, or hoping that they might take that from it? I I definitely wasn't trying to misdirect. I was trying to keep it suspended as long as possible, which I think probably isn't all that long. I, I think if you're reading the book, then you can begin to think, mm, yeah, okay, I think, I think it was X. I think I can see what's happening here. But I wasn't, uh, you know, some people have said, oh, you know, it was really like a, a, a detective story. It was really like a, a form of psychological kind of drama. And yes, and I was really happy to hear people say that, but I wasn't trying to lead, uh, I, I wasn't trying to lay false trails in the kind of Agatha Christie yeah. sense. Definitely, definitely not. Well, I mean, you can't you can't help but get involved. I think, which is which is a testament to the strength of the novel. But uh, that's to say that the guilty party does have a conversation um, with a priest, um, and and they have a conversation about absolution and mm. uh, uh, and the possibility of it. And that felt like a very important scene to me. Is there anything you can kind of tell me about what that what that scene means for the the theme of the novel as a whole? Well, I think as a novelist, you you have to create characters that um, you can, on some level, um, empathise with. You don't. You can you can hate their guts as much as you like, but you have to show that there is sympathy for them possible. So that at the end of the book, I I wanted it to be the case that that X, as we shall call him or her. <laughs> um, that that we can that we can empathize with them just as much as with everybody else, and that scene that you refer to with the priest um, is that character's uh, way of beginning their own process of coming to terms with what's happened as well, because it would not have been right. I think it wouldn't have been sort of morally just for somebody to be sort of thrown to the dogs 
while there is there's a tentative possibility of a revival of everybody else's life, um, you have to imagine that that character can can bring their life back as well, I think. Okay, I'd, um, I'd love to ask you now about the sort of the process of writing the novel, because as we mentioned, you're an accomplished non-fiction writer. Were the mental processes of writing fiction, did you find them very different, or the novel form in particular? My head says no. My head says that fiction and non-fiction alike, you, you have to distill your own sense of creativity onto the page. And with my non-fiction, it's certainly the case that the, the question of accessibility and of being able to tell a really good story, whether it's a history book, a biography, was absolutely crucial to me, absolutely fund- fundamental. I didn't want there to be anything, anything um, difficult or off-putting about any of my non-fiction books. Um, but I'm, I am aware, and I'm, I'm not a, a brain scientist by any means, but I am aware that when I'm writing fiction, it feels like a different part of my brain, a different part of my cerebral cortex is being accessed. It's, um, it's slower, for one thing, which I'm very aware of, but there's also a sense of... Um, that was one of my questions, was it slower? Because <laughs> I, I assumed it, it would yeah. be... Yeah, it was slower yeah. for sure. Um, yeah, I, I had to write inch levels, and it's, this isn't a complaint by any means, but I had to write inch levels in the gaps between writing other books. My non-fiction books tended to be, tended to be commissioned works, you know, with these kind of nightmarish deadlines that you must meet and you don't have any choice, you have to meet them. So you have to set everything else aside work on your commissioned piece, get it done, then go back to inch, inch levels. Um, so it, it took a while, it took, it took several, several years in this sort of concertina sort of way of writing in short bursts and short bursts and short bursts. But yeah, it, it seem, seems to access a different part of my, of my brain, of my subconscious, my imagination, whatever you want, want to call it. But the sense of, of satisfaction is, is greater as well. It's immensely satisfying when you get into that sort of zone and, you, uh, and the book seems to be in 3D in front of you. That's, that's, that's a great feeling. And, that, and for me, in a way, that came to life much more in fiction than in my other books. So can I ask what you're writing on now? You can. <laughs> yes, go <laughs> Working on, on now, I should say. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm in the middle of my next novel. It's... Um, it's, uh, it's very different from Inch Levels. It's, it isn't really set in Ireland, for one thing. And it's about what happens when you lose uh, your sense of trust. What happens when it's taken away from you for whatever reason? Can you get it back? And if you can't get it back, what, what form does your life take as a result? And it follows the, follows the lives of three very separate um, individuals. Their lives come together at a moment of crisis. And it, it, opens, um, it opens very, I think, very, very dramatically. I'm very pleased with the op- opening with, um, with a heist in an art gallery. Somebody wants to steal an immensely valuable painting. And of course, as you can imagine, the heist goes wrong. And everything flows from that. 
Sounds intriguing. I think your 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 editor was was writing for the Irish Times about how Inch Levels is a is a kind of a, a quiet novel mm. um in for, for vast parts of it, although there is obviously um several moments of drama as mm. well. So this sounds like this new novel is is slightly less quiet than Inch Levels? I think it's slightly less quiet. It's it's um it's it's hard to say what it is. It's it's less quiet, but it's not a big kind of roller coaster novel either. Um, at this point in my writing life, um, I don't want to write a all guns blazing book, but it you know it it rule, it rolls along at a fair pace, which I'm happy about. Is it true to say you can never really say what a novel is about until you're finished it? Yeah, I do think that. I I th- I think I I really feel strongly that you have to put yourself in the way of your subconscious mind to do the heavy lifting of what of whatever form of fiction you're you're writing and that if you if you if you get into that place if you trust yourself to get into that zone it turns out that you can be amazed at the sort of stuff which is accessed in your imagination and and finds its way onto the page Uh, that's happened to me over and over again there was so much in inch, inch levels that simply doesn't exist in any of the planning and any of the note-taking or any of the research that I did. It just emerged as I was writing something else. And then you, you, you grab a pencil and you write it down and you think, if I don't write it down, it's, it's going to vanish again. Um, and if you can put yourself in the way of that, of accessing the, you know, the 90% of your brain that, that you can't access in your conscious mind anyway, it makes the writing process I think, um, a whole lot easier, a whole lot more straightforward. It flows a lot more, but you need to trust yourself to be able to do that. And are you experiencing now um, that you have more time uh, to write this novel or is it the same as before where it's uh, um, uh, isolated pockets that you have to grab as best you can? Well, I try to set as much time aside for writing as possible. Sometimes... I, I do others I do other things I, I edit I do some journalism I write reviews but it's about trying to get those other things out of the way as fast as possible so you can create as much space for the novel if you can get you know a little bit of space of one's own then it makes everything so much easier because you, you need to gather up a kind of head of steam so Inch Levels was, was published uh, last year. Uh, was there anything about the reception and all of the articles that have been written for the Irish Times recently that surprised you? Was there, was there a take that somebody had that hadn't occurred to you as, as you were writing it? Um, no, I don't think so. A lot, Everything that was said, I had kind of reflected on in, in various ways. There, there was, one, there was one, uh, one of the pieces spoke a lot about Brexit, and of course, this book w- was kind of done and dusted long before Brexit made its appalling appearance on the stage. Mm. But I am surprised by um, the the border really features in this book, and again, it's that thing of being being visible and invisible at the same time. So I, I was I was very pleased at the piece which which wrote about Brexit, which talked about this sort of strange foreshadowing of a border which is both present and absent at the same time. 
at this point where we just don't know what's going to happen in the next couple of years and how that's going to affect Northern Ireland and the border and everything else. So even though I'd, I had thought of it, um, I, I wasn't expecting it to feature um, in any coverage of inch levels because I, I, I didn't in my wildest dreams think that we'd be in the place that we're in at the moment with Brexit and everything else. Terrible. Yeah, no, I don't think, I think very few people <laughs> expected us to yes. be in the situation that we're, yes. we're in now, unfortunately. But um, for, for now, I just want to thank everybody in this uh, live audience for coming to the Irish Times uh, podcast event. Just a quick note to say that our next podcast is with Adrian McKinty, who's flying in from Australia to talk about his novel Rain Dogs. Um, thank you very much to our sound engineer, JJ Vernon, to Kate Cunningham and everybody in the Irish Writers' Centre for hosting us. But a very special thanks to Neil Hegarty. Thank you.